Pretty Serious. Pretty Serious is a podcast where we discuss unusual suspects and topics. From politics and TV and film, to pop culture, and my thoughts on important issues impacting our world. Because we can do both. Hi cuties, welcome back to another episode of Pretty Serious. Honestly, I have been in such a weird mood this week. One part, I've been really sad about what's happening to the people of Gaza, especially as Israel is continuing to heavily bomb innocent people, including some refugee camps in the area. Even Secretary of State Anthony Blinken has mentioned how gut-wrenching it is to see a child being pulled out from under rubble. And because of images like this, I've honestly barely even been able to watch the news because I just get so upset at how the whole situation is covered and also at the inhumanity in display. I am just so disappointed and so angry that so many of our leaders are just allowing this ethnic cleansing and genocide to happen. I think that this is really one of those moments where, um, as we learn in history, you know, when we learn about the Holocaust, when we learn about apartheid in South Africa, we think, how could have people allowed for this to happen? And the reality is, is that right now we are living that moment. This is how people allow for things like this to happen. When people in power um, refuse to uh, do the right thing. And then the other part, which is related, is that I'm honestly feeling a little bit resentful at most people's indifference in the type of content they've been consuming and also just their silence. I saw a TikTok earlier this year that summed up my feelings so well. Kelly Catrone was in this video. Some of you may remember Kelly Catrone from The Hills on MTV and how she made Lauren Conrad cry because she messed something up while she was interning at a fashion show for her in the early 2000s. I know, iconic. <laughs> Lauren did continue to work for her throughout her time on The Hills and I mean, for good reason. Kelly Catrone is a PR maverick, and later she became a reality TV star who is known for her quick wit and no bullshit attitude, and I fucking love her for it because in a sea of people constantly celebrating mediocrity, she actually tells it like it is. So during this year's New York Fashion Week, Kelly was asked a question by a TikToker. Um, the account is at Kala Kessler. Kelly, give me one thing that's in and one thing that, that's out this fashion week. One thing that's in is the motherfucking truth. Here. One thing that's out is influencers. Bye. See you later. That's from why. Tell me why. I mean, what do they influence? It's a good question. I mean, it's a good question to ask. You heard it here first. Kelly Catron. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Let me tell you, this little like 22 second video spoke to me in the depths of my soul. 
it just, it felt so refreshing to finally hear someone say what I've been thinking about for the past year or more, which is my annoyance with influencer culture and seeing these people have millions of followers, but they don't do or say anything that actually matters or possess talents worthy of that kind of engagement, yet they're rewarded by the algorithm while important topics and causes are shadow banned. We live in a world where get ready with me videos are the holy grail and talking about things that matter are boring. Therefore, the exposure and opportunities are given to whatever blonde, skinny influencer who doesn't really have a lot to say besides how messed up she got at last night's frat party or what club she's getting ready to go to tonight. Honestly, who cares? I don't and you shouldn't either. It's fucked up and that's why I've started to intentionally not engage I just don't understand the fascination or the hype around certain influencers. I think that their looks and their lifestyles are completely an unattainable model for most women to aspire to. It's almost like the modern day Victoria's Secret effect, but on social media with more average, (laughs) more average everyday people. I think it would be different if they use their platforms for fun and for substance. I think Call Her Daddy is actually a semi-good mainstream example of that. And, you know, this is not coming from a place of putting anyone down, but just an observation of how fucked up values have become in our society that literal children are aspiring, aspiring to be these people rather than actually do something important in their life that matters. One thing that I've always loved about social media is that it removed gatekeepers in certain aspects, which has leveled out the playing field to an extent. I know that there is a certain desire for escapism for some people, but I think there is a difference between giving credit where credit is due and the over-glamorization and over-hyping of people who are literally not contributing anything as our world is falling apart, yet they have a platform where millions of people follow them. I'm just over it. And I'm over people who live in a bubble. And to the people who are going to be like, well, I don't care about social issues or politics. I just I just want to follow her to know what dress she's wearing and what makeup she's wearing. You should be asking yourself what's wrong with that statement. Like Kelly Catrone said, truth is in, the era of substance is on the way, and the era of mindless influencing is out. The queen of fashion PR said it herself. And, you know, maybe I'm being too harsh, but I think that Kelly and I are on to something. I really do. Anyway, thank you for coming to my TED Talk. (laughs) Okay, this week I'm talking all about the explosive allegations made in Vanity Fair by former cast and staff on the Bravo Real Housewives franchise. Bethany Frankel, who is one of the OG um, housewives from the Real Housewives of New York City, is calling this a quote-unquote reality reckoning. But baby, I think it's so much more than that. We're talking certain people making literal alleged racial slurs, the call for reality stars to unionize, and 
how what used to be acceptable is slowly but surely biting production companies and networks in the ass. This article was a whammy to get through, and I definitely have some thoughts. And speaking of labor, I'll also be discussing the huge victory that striking auto workers won earlier this week. Whoop, whoop. The historic impacts of their organizing on the overall labor movement and the unlikely organizing strategy that got them there. So let's get into it. This week, Vanity Fair dropped an article I headlined Inside the Real Housewives Reckoning That's Rocking Bravo. As someone who has watched The Real Housewives with my mom since day one of New York and Orange County, I was intrigued. And let me tell you, some allegations aren't a surprise and others are pretty disturbing. The article tries to make sense of what happened on the original Real Housewives of New York between 2020 and 2021. To be honest, the article is a bit confusing at times for me, so here's a little summary to simplify and break it down for you. The article questions the ethics allegedly employed by reality TV producers attempting to get stars to be more outrageous for the camera. It dives into Bethany Frankel's recent call for reality TV stars to unionize and provides a detailed timeline of the events that allegedly preceded and followed season 13, the last Roni season with original cast members. The article also highlights perspective from Ebony Williams, the first black woman to star in Roni, who joined the show for the 13th season and who, let's be honest, was not treated the greatest even on camera. So I can't imagine what happened behind the scenes. For those of you who haven't watched or heard of The Real Housewives, it's an unscripted reality TV show that originally started centered in Orange County, California in the early 2000s and followed the lives and friendships of a group of 40-something wealthy housewives. At the time, there weren't really any shows which focused on middle-aged women and their lives. So in its own messed up way, Bravo was doing something that had never been done before in a major network. The only thing that I think was, which was what actually inspired the Real Housewives franchise was when Desperate Housewives, the actual scripted show, um, was at its peak and everyone was watching it and that's kind of what set off part of the inspiration of what became the Real Housewives franchise on Bravo. After its success, Bravo began expanding the franchise to other cities including New York City, Beverly Hills, Atlanta, Potomac, Miami, and Salt Lake City. So now that you know some background and the highlights, let's dig into the deets. Probably the most surprising, but also not surprising allegation to me was Ramona Singer being accused of racism on the set of Roni. Ramona is one of the OGs from like 15 years ago on season one of Roni. She's always been a little wacky and seems to put her foot in her mouth in every other episode. Considering her past comments and behavior, she was probably the worst combination to mix with Ebony. So here's her alleged actions that got broken down in in the Vanity Fair article. Number one, 
Ramona allegedly claimed that most black people don't have fathers. Before filming for the 13th season of Roni, Bravo reportedly scheduled some kind of virtual education session to help the previously all-white cast identify and avoid racially insensitive behavior. Vanity Fair says that the topics reportedly included how black women are treated in larger society and the black community, microaggressions, appropriate versus harmful offensive language, and what to do when you say something offensive. How do you move forward in that relationship? Ebony told Vanity Fair that during that meeting, the women discussed the stereotype that black fathers aren't present in their children's lives. Ebony said Ramona reportedly asked, and this is going to be my best Ramona Singer impersonation, well, what if they don't have a father? Why can I say that? And then doubled down, adding, most of them don't. When the show's publicist, also a black woman, responded that she had a father, Ramona allegedly brought up some study that suggested the publicist was basically an exception. Leah McSweeney, who is also a former Housewives and was on the call, uh, and also actually made allegations of her treatment in this article, recalled the incident happening in that way. So she basically backed up what Ebony said. Ramona's response to Vanity Fair was, the training included open dialogue. In that spirit, I asked a question about a statistic. I had read about a single parent household where children with a single parent household were statistically less likely to succeed than two parent households. Basically saying that what she said was misunderstood but that's super questionable to me. Babe, it's 2020 when you filmed this. The Black Lives Matter movement was blowing up across the world. Get with the times. Check your freaking resources. <laughs> Number two, Ramona allegedly said that black people would quote, ruin Roni. Dear Lord, it just keeps getting worse. <laughs> In another episode, Ebony recalled a group conversation in which Countess Luanne de Lesseps, who is, all, is also one of the OGs from season one, described Ebony as an angry woman, which Ebony said she interpreted as an angry black woman. Luanne then insisted that she never mentioned race and Ebony basically left the gathering, which I don't blame her, I probably would too, and the scene ended. But a source who purportedly stuck around told Vanity Fair that after Ebony left, Ramona had said some sort of an outburst saying, this is why we don't need black people on the show. This is gonna ruin our show. Ramona denies that this ever happened and that she actually supported diversifying the cast well before, Will before Ebony was added. Okay, <laughs> I don't know about that. Number three, Ramona reportedly used the N-word while speaking with a black producer. That is just fucking awful. She reportedly asked Ebony about her partner's race during some kind of on-camera conversation they were having. And when Ebony refused to respond and walked away from the convo, 
Ramona allegedly told Darian Edmondson, a black producer, that the interaction reminded her of a time when her Jewish colleagues called her a, quote, Catholic slur. The slur Ramona named, according to the producer, was, and I'm sorry if I mispronounced this, shiksa. It's a Yiddish term for a non-Jewish woman. Edmondson said she didn't know it and recalls Ramona replying, oh, it's literally like somebody calling you a N-word, quote. In the article, that same producer said she wasn't able to produce Sonja Morgan, Luanda Lesseps, or Ramona Singer because they simply didn't respond to her texts or calls in the same way other cast members did. That was even before Ramona said the whole N-word thing. Ramona then told Vanity Fair, denying again that she actually said this, she said that she never said the N-word and that Edmondson quote, misrepresented the interaction. Edmondson has not been hired for a Bravo series since her one and only Roni season, which ended filming in 2021. Very strange. Very, very strange. But Ramona stuck around. (sighs) Number four. An NBC Universal investigation into Ramona's comments was, quote, inconclusive, but found that she had a hard time, quote, telling black crew members apart, quote. This woman is like a freaking textbook Karen. What the hell? What the fuck, Ramona? (laughs) Do better. Jesus. To no one's surprise, Ramona got reported to HR. uh, And Ebony says that on a call with NBCU executives and an external lawyer, she learned that the subsequent investigation found Ramona's remarks about the show not needing Black cast members to be inconclusive, though it determined that Ramona had said she struggled to tell Black crew members apart. Ebony claims a person on the call confirmed that Ramona had said the N-word and that a lawyer tried to downplay it, arguing that Ramona just said the slur but did not use it against Edmondson. Like, that fucking matters. (laughs) In response, NBCU's chief diversity officer, who is biracial, reportedly told the lawyer, no. What we're not going to do is sit here and litigate the capacity in which the N-word was used in the presence of a black woman. Claps and snaps for whoever that was, that chief diversity officer. Um, Ebony said that that was the only time she felt supported while working on the show, which is so sad. And I'm so incredibly sorry she had to go through that because... That's pretty bad. That's like pretty in your face. That's not like, oh, I thought she made me feel this way. Like, no, she allegedly has, is actually saying, saying the words she's not supposed to say um, and making assumptions about people because of their race. 
As for talking about her purported difficulty differentiating between the black people working on Roni, Ramona didn't deny it, but again claimed her comments weren't what they'd seemed. She says, it was a strictly a commentary on my inability to remember names, she told Vanity Fair in, in an email. As an example, just last week, I saw a photo with me and Travis Kelsey from 2016 on Watch What Happens Live, and I thought he was Jax Taylor. What? No, Ramona, no. Number five, Ramona won't be participating in BravoCon this year. Uh, so basically, on Tuesday, in response to the Vanity Fair story, uh, Ramona reportedly texted a page six reporter denying that she ever used the N-word. Her text apparently included part of the slur and the word I used says, quote, and the word I used was N-word, not like spelled out N-word. She wrote per a screenshot published by the tabloid. Soon after, Page Six reported that her name had been removed from the list of participants at BravoCon, which is taking place in Las Vegas this weekend. Well, duh. Honestly, I'm so surprised that she even made it as far as she has. She should most definitely not be participating in BravoCon or anywhere, considering the things that she's being accused of saying. And it's not even just one instance, it's multiple instances. So Ebony claims that she tried to quit the show on the same day that Ramona allegedly used the N-word, though she was unaware of that alleged exchange at the time. She says that she met with producers three days later to discuss her exit, but they urged her to stay. One saying, quote, listen, what you're giving us is exactly what we want. If we wanted a different black woman, we know how to get them. Quote. <laughs> Ebony alleges that Lisa Shannon, senior vice president of programming and development for Shed, the subsidiary production company that works on Roni and Real Housewives of Salt Lake City, which I urge you guys to read the article because it's so much more complicated. Like, it's not Bravo who produces these shows they basically outsource these shows to be produced by smaller uh, production companies all over the country so technically it's not bravo producing it even though it the show and the concept was created by bravo they hire basically external production companies to actually film and be on the ground so as lisa shannon the senior vice president of shed uh, suggested that Ebony try to take the racist comments less seriously, saying, quote, Ebony, this show is a comedy. Another source with knowledge told the magazine that a producer told Ebony and others generally that Real Housewives is partly comedic in nature. Viewers tend to see the show as an escape, quote. This is exactly what I was talking about in my intro to today's episode, and reading those comments literally makes my blood boil. Because specifically when this season was being filmed, this was when the Black Lives Matter movement like had gone global. 
because of what happened to George Floyd and how he was killed by police brutality. And they're like, Ebony, this show's a comedy. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> like, you don't care about anything else that's going on in the world? Like, why did you put her on the show then? That's the part that I don't understand. Another highlight from the article is um, Leah McSweeney's relapse into alcoholism was basically egged on for storyline purposes, which is disgusting to hear about. Uh, alcohol and substance abuse who are basically the stars of this article from the first paragraph it's actually pretty sad to read some of the accounts from housewives who wanted to be kept anonymous again i recommend you actually read the article for yourself after listening to this episode i'll link it in the notes um because this is what i'm giving you now is a run through of like the highlights and What I'm giving you now is basically the highlights of the article, but there's a lot of meat in there that you should definitely read for yourself. One of the other major takeaways is that Bethany Frankel said SAG-AFTRA strike and Rachel Levy's treatment on banter pump rules inspired her calls for reality TV stars to unionize. This is an excerpt from the article. On July 21, Bethany posted a TikTok in which she grapples with assailing a grieving widow for TV and calls for a reality reckoning. It got a lot of pickup, Frankel says now. It seemed fairly obvious to me then, I said. How am I going to further, how am I going to go further with this? I can't just talk and not do something. In addition to her stated goal of securing future rights for cast and crew with input from SAG-AFTRA, Frankel says she's planning to meet with network and streaming executives about improving conditions on reality productions. During her interview with Rachel earlier this year, Bethany opened the door for her to really talk about how everyone profited from the aftermath of Scandaval and how public scrutiny and the emotional abuse that Rachel endured destroyed her mental health so much that she had no choice but to go check herself into a mental health facility in Arizona, leaving her basically broke and with no career prospects that wouldn't force her to be in the same environment that basically put her in that mental health facility again. I didn't pay attention to Scandoval. I thought it was dumb and no different from all the other cheating scandals on this show. I think that there's a lot of misogyny there too. Um, Again, like you should definitely hear the story from from Rachel herself. Um, And I'll link that interview um, on Bethany's podcast that she had Rachel on. So just to give you some insight into what the contracts are like, another aspect is that all of these cast members are hired as independent contractors, which means that they don't get the productions employees of whatever production company they're working for would normally get. My thoughts are that these issues are not just about Roni. These problems span all Bravo shows, the entertainment industry, and across all industries, frankly, 
leaving workers vulnerable to the whims of whoever their bosses are, especially as the as the gig economy grows every day. I have a hard time believing that Ramona Singer did not in fact do any of these alleged incidents. I think that if there was an actual investigation, there was probably a long history of her microaggressions, prejudiced and racist behavior. And it just finally got her in trouble in, in this last season. The fact that Bravo continued to hire Ramona for spinoffs and inviting her on Andy Cohen's Watch What Happens live show while one, knowing all of these allegations and two, never hiring or working with the black producer or Ebony again. Shame on them, honestly. Up until this article came out in Vanity Fair, Ramona was still scheduled to appear at BravoCon this week, which is a huge annual conference that Bravo Network hosts for fans. And because of this huge scandal, basically, in this Vanity Fair article, that's it wasn't until that that she was not invited <laughs> or at least canceled her appearance. I have mixed feelings about the situation with Leah. Her situation reminded me a lot of toxic relationships and her toxic relationship was with being on the sh on the show. She's a successful woman without the show. She has her own clothing brand. She runs in a circle of well-known people and is financially independent. Why she needs to go on the show and put her sobriety and mental health on the line, that part I don't understand. If I was in her position, I would have ditched that group trip to be at my dying grandmother's side. I wouldn't care if I lost money or a spot on some show with people I'm not even friends with in real life because no show is worth having regrets and no closure over the death of someone I love. But I'm not her, so I can't know what was going through her head. Overall, Leah's participation in this article left me with more questions than answers or insight, to be honest. As far as Bravo, just because you're not holding a gun to these ladies' heads and telling them to drink alcohol or force them into other substance, substance abuse issues doesn't mean you're not creating a toxic environment that encourages their darkest addictions. Plain and simple, like, that's wrong. The whole substance abuse piece of this article is difficult for me because I can only imagine the pain, anxiety, and desperation some of these women must have felt especially when like your worst nightmares or like everything that's going wrong in your life is being projected for all these other women in the group to have to comment on and to basically like air out your dirty laundry for you i've heard commentary by some bravo recap podcasters saying well this is why we watch we want to see these women be a disaster we know alcohol fuels this behavior that's why we tune in and i think that's so fucked up how have we reached this place where we have no compassion or empathy for other human beings especially as they are fighting addictions or mental health issues it's gross. And in the beginning, it wasn't about that. Now, with time, the franchise's expectations for views and cast behavior has got crazier and crazier, pushing people to do things that are out of character, hurting themselves and, and hurting others. 
it should not be acceptable to say to, to someone that because they signed up for this, it excuses the abuse. Because no one, and I mean absolutely no one, signs up to be abused. I don't care what you say. The reality, no pun intended, <laughs> is that Bravo really hasn't done anything to right their wrongs here. If anything, they're retaliating against those who speak out instead of protecting them, which is like typical textbook corporate behavior, to be honest. My favorite line of this entire article is this. The article says, presented with the idea that she might participate in Bethany's organizing, Ebony Williams said, quote, fuck Bethany Frankel. You think I'm going to let some white girl speak for me with my experience with a multi-billion dollar corporation? Quote. <laughs> I'm obsessed. I love her for saying that. Although I do, I do think that what Bethany is doing is actually... She's on the right side of history. Well, I enjoy taking some time away from real life by watching these shows. I don't condone these alleged behaviors. All workers should be paid fairly and have rights regardless of their workplace. I think what Bethany Frankel is doing by starting this conversation is admirable. I really liked how she treated Rachel Levy's from Vanderpump Rules when she interviewed her on her podcast following the whole dumb scandal thing, which in my opinion got way too much air. Not to mention the hate and mistreatment of a young woman who did what pretty much everyone on the cast has done by having an affair and who the majority of these people on the internet hating on her didn't even know. They literally drove her to checking into a mental health facility. But anything for entertainment, right? <laughs> it's like Gladiator or something, and people cheer as those in the arena are being ripped apart. Bethany, so far, I think is the only one who genuinely let her speak without judgment and being attacked. And that kindness was was felt and transpired through the, the interview. On Monday, the historic and creative wave of strikes that put the auto industry at a standstill for six weeks came to an end when the last of three big car manufacturers, General Motors, reached a deal with the United Automobile Workers Union. The tentative agreement will cover 150,000 workers at America's big three automakers. According to The New Yorker, under the new labor contract with Ford, which served as the model for the agreements with Stellantis and GM, fully vested production line workers will receive a cumulative hourly pay increase of about 27%, and some members of skilled trades will receive raises of more than 30%. All union members will also receive annual cost of living adjustments based on the rate of consumer price inflation. Taken together, these provisions will raise the top hourly wages of Ford production workers from $32.05 to $42.60 in the course of the contract, which will run until 2028, and the hourly wages of skilled workers from 
$8.96 to $50.97, the union said. So the pay increase is more than all of the combined increases that the union got in wages for over about the last 20 years. That's huge, like truly huge. The agreement also shortened the time it takes for new hires to be paid full wages. So under a two-tier pay system that was introduced in 2007, newer Ford workers received roughly half as much pay as older workers, and it took them eight years to make up the difference. But going forward, new hires will be paid 85% of the top rate after two years and 100% after three years. Between now and October 2025, according to the union, some Ford workers will see their hourly wages double under this provision. According to the UA leadership, the agreement with Ford will enable the union to organize workers at a new battery plant that the automaker is building in Marshall, Michigan, and at a new EV plant in Tennessee that is a joint venture with the South Korean electric battery company, SK Innovation. In addition, workers at existing plants, which mainly make vehicles and components for vehicles powered by internal combustion engines, will have opportunities to switch to electric vehicle plants, which surprised many that the companies actually made that concession, which is great. In the area of retirement benefits, Ford agreed to increase its 401k contributions to roughly 10% for older workers, but the new contract doesn't include the restoration of a defined benefit pension and retiree health insurance for all employees. What was really interesting about this strike was the unique strategy that got UAW to this victory. Traditionally, the union would strike at all plants at one company. So they would pick one company known as the Target and they would go on strike there and try to get the best deal they could from that company and then try to get the other two to agree to the same terms. So that was the traditional way, the way it's been done for decades. But this time around, they had a brand new president Sean Fain was elected last spring and he came in with a completely different approach and a completely different mindset and idea of how to take these companies on. The strategy definitely gives guerrilla style tactics vibes and I'm here for it. But as there always is, there was a lot of criticism amongst organizers for the use of this strategy. But in the end, it worked. And so what they did was they struck at all three companies at the same time, but they only picked a few targeted plants or locations to strike. And then they would add more over time to increase the pressure on the companies. And what this did was it kept the companies on their toes. So they weren't sure where the union was going to hit next or where they were going to feel the impact next. According to the New York Times, it was frustrating for the companies because they didn't know when or what Sean Fain was going to do next, and it created a high level of anxiety on the company's side at the very beginning, 
uh, they were really frustrated apparently and they didn't know how to respond to it and it proved very effective for Sean Fain and the United Auto Workers. They really hit him where it hurts there and had the element of surprise. The New York Times also said, Early on, UAW began to see they were gaining ground, and the best example of that came at the beginning of October. Ford and the UAW were going to have a negotiating session that was going to be at the Ford World Headquarters. They had a big room with this giant negotiating table with 50 seats on one side and 50 seats on the other. They were all set for this big meeting, but the union got there and Ford did not have a new offer for them. And that surprised Sean Fain and he was annoyed, which I would be too. And right then and there, he told Ford, you just lost Kentucky truck. And he was referring to this truck plant in Louisville, Kentucky. It's Ford's largest. It's Ford's most profitable. And he walked out minutes after the meeting started and called the local president in Kentucky and told them, tell your workers to walk out of the plant. And that night, they walked out. And it was super dramatic because it showed the power that Sean Fain had to strike at the company very quickly and at a time and a place the company was unprepared for. And then after the strike at the Kentucky plant, the UAW did the same thing to GM and then to Stellantis. They went out at big truck plants owned by those companies. Then two weeks later, they had a tentative agreement with Ford. And then three days later, Stellantis agreed to basically the same terms as Ford. And then finally, on Monday, October 30th, there was a tentative agreement with General Motors, which means the strike was finally, after six weeks, coming to an end. I just can't get over how badass this moment must have been to witness. Like, holy crap. Dry, drop the mic, President. What an example of not being soft, holding the line, and hitting these companies where it hurts. Ugh. They're going to have to make a movie of that moment one day. It's so dramatic. I'm obsessed. New York Times' Neil Baudet said that through this strike, Sean Fain has emerged as one of the most important leaders in the UAW's long history. For the last 20 years, the union has really been going backwards, according to Baudet. They've been giving concessions to the companies, they've accepted lower wages for newer workers, and Sean Fain is the man who turned that around. I literally have chills. This is the kind of victory we, we needed during such dark times. It truly makes my heart happy and gives me so much hope for what is possible. Wow. Thank you, UAW. So what's in the future for UAW and the labor movement? Continuing the momentum, UAW president wants to expand the union's battle from the Detroit automakers to... Tesla, Toyota, Honda, Hyundai, Nissan, and other non-unionized automakers in the U.S. He said, "This isn't just a, this isn't just UAW's fight. It's everybody's fight." And damn, he meant it. 
Immediately after the UAW announced they'd won 25% raises and cost of living adjustments for union auto workers at Ford, GM, and Stellantis, Toyota immediately announced raises for their non-union workers. A direct example of how the win is already impacting workers beyond the union, which is incredible. A win for workers somewhere is a win for workers everywhere, period. Following Toyota's announcement, union president responded saying, Toyota isn't giving out raises out of the goodness of their heart. They did it now because the company knows we're coming for them. Spurn. UAW also tweeted this week saying, we invite all unions around the country to align your contract expirations with our own so that together we can begin to flex our collective muscle. With some taking that as a hint on social media to coordinate with other industries for a general strike in May, 2028, hence giving time to those non-union workplaces to organize and allowing workers from every workplace to join forces and basically strengthen bargaining power. So if your workplace is non-union, this is your sign to start organizing. We have four years, wink, wink. <laughs> so my thoughts on this are that, first of all, the UAW, the new uaw president has been an incredibly inspiring figure in this fight not only for workers but for all working people like watching some of the speeches that he's made during the strike hearing of <laughs> how he's been negotiating for these workers is so damn inspiring this victory has given the uaw potential to gain new members and organize because this contract really has enhanced the union's image and reputation. For years, uni unions like UAW had really been struggling and now they're taking their members forward and winning higher wages and better benefits. So it makes the union more attractive to workers who could potentially join and also is really making them a leader in and how we can begin, you know, changing up our organizing tactics. These wins came at an immense sacrifice from union organizers, striking workers and their families. Together through the criticism, they fought for better pay because of their bravery and courage to take on giants like GM and Stellantis. They've unknowingly ignited what others see as possible. And it literally makes me cry thinking about it because of how much working people are underestimated, yet they believed and they persevered for a better tomorrow for all of us. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I feel like it was actually good to get some things off my chest and I had so much fun discussing this week's news. Also, I don't think I've ever said allegedly so many times in one day. I love to hear what you all think about the topics we discuss and questions that come up while you listen. Send in your comments and questions using the Q&A feature on Spotify or DM us on IG at Pretty Serious Pod. We are a listener-funded podcast, 
So if your little heart desires, please support with a small monthly donation to help sustain future episodes. You can find the link in the episode notes. New episodes of Pretty Serious with me, Belen Sisa, drop every Friday. Please subscribe to the pod wherever you get your podcasts to be the first to know about new episodes. As a fairly new podcast, reviews make a huge difference to our success. So if you liked this episode, please leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend. Love you and see you next week. Bye.